welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 67, we begin at the beginning. Well, hello! Here we are again at the beginning of a new text, and I am overwhelmed! Oh, did you cry? Did you weep? I got emails from people saying, yes, I did get all teary-eyed, I did get all choked up. I already knew what was going to happen, and I still got choked up, and I did too. I so had to turn off the microphone for a while. It's just such a great book, and I'm, I am so glad that Julie uh, forced me to listen to it, because I really, seriously, would have gone to my grave never, ever having read or listened to Tale of Two Cities if it hadn't been for her. I loathed it so after high school. And now I find myself in front of a classroom of college freshmen who are, um, they're starting to get personalities. I've only spent, you know, two days, 75 minutes a day with them. But I'm starting to find a few personalities in there, and they are an interesting group of kids. But, um, but kids they are. It's very interesting how close freshmen are at the beginning of their college career to high school students, which sounds like a no-brainer. I mean, that really does sound like a big duh, because it's only been three months since they were in high school. But somehow, I don't know, maybe it's the mystique of college. I just kind of had always anticipated that they would be different just by dint of suddenly living away from home and, and being in a position where they had to be responsible for themselves. And I think in some ways they are. Um, but in other ways, oh my goodness, they are still little kids, and they're so sweet, and they're so earnest, and I know next semester they won't be, so I'm really enjoying this. Uh, but I, I have started the gig at the University of Arizona, for which I am very grateful and really enjoying myself. It's going to be a lot of work, but it's also going to be a lot of fun. And I have been, I have been a polygamous knitter. I have not been able to even stick with knitting. I keep going back and forth between knitting and weaving. I'm still working on the uh, the huck lace weaving for the um, table runner that I started. And it's coming along nicely. You know, all it is is time. Whenever I get a few minutes, I sit down and I throw the shuttle back and forth a few times. I tell you, it appears to me, um, and I'm sure if you listen to Sign Mitchell's Weavecast, you've, you've picked up the same thing. If you just warp the thing correctly, uh, the rest of it really goes very quickly and is kind of criminally easy. It's the warping that's the trick. So that's been a really good lesson for me. And then I'm, I'm working on some socks for myself and some socks for my stepmom. I've already done a pair for my mom and my sister, the Horcrux socks from the Six Socks Knit Along. And I'm working on a pair of Gansey um, styled socks for myself, which I'm doing in Socks That Rock. And I hate to say it, but my God, I have missed working with Socks That Rock yarn. There is there is something so sinful about how good this yarn feels. And um, and I, I can't remember what the last pair of socks has been that I used this yarn on, but it's it's just been far too long. And uh, I think I'm going to have to, when I finally come around to buying more yarn, I think I am going to have to actually arm wrestle people to uh, Tony Neal's stall from Tony Neal from the fold in Marengo, Illinois. I am going to have to arm wrestle or hurt people to get to some more socks that rock at SOAR this year. Last year I didn't buy any. At SOAR I let the Maelstrom begin on its own and I didn't participate because I already had some. And I'm, I'm trying not to acquire a stash that I will never be able to work through. And I've been pretty good. I, I am, in fact, knitting from my stash as often as not. And it's only on occasions like I showed my husband in the Knit One magazine, the one that the green issue that actually came out when I uh, interviewed Adina earlier this year. I went out and I bought myself a copy. And I was very, very pleased to find the first sweater pattern that my husband has ever said, yeah, I'd wear that. 
And so I thought, well, my God, I have to make this now. So I went and got the Louette linen for making the shirt. And it's, I was not prepared for how much Louette linen costs these days. It's gone up considerably in price from the last time I bought it. And I bought it from our local yarn store. So I don't feel bad about that at all because she works, our, our local yarn store, Kiwi Knitting, she works very, very hard to make sure that that store runs well and runs for the people who go there. And uh, I don't at all begrudge her her percentage on the yarn, but my goodness, <laughs> it's going to be an expensive Guayabara shirt for my husband. And, uh, and he'd better wear it, and he knows that. <laughs> so I think we'll be fine. But I've been working on the shirt for him, mostly because it's really simple knitting. I'm using a size seven needle. It's very easy on my wrists. And my wrists have been hurting a lot. My my back and my neck are still rather tense, and and the wrists are definitely paying for it. So I'm starting to do some exercises and see if I can maybe maybe relax it that way. We shall see. I think um, working at home, working on a book. I'm working on a craft lit book. I'm working on a book for craft lit. Uh, I'm working on that. I'm working on uh, an article for I hope for spinoff. I'm working on the podcast. I'm working on my writing for educational publishing, and I'm working at the U of A. I have a lot that I'm doing right now, but the cool thing is I'm not losing sleep. You know, I still, it, it all feels good and it feels right. It just feels weird because there's so much of it. Our school has started here again. Arizona starts school early. So our boys are in school and very happy about that. Second grade is looking like a good thing for my older son. And my younger son is at his little Montessori and is so in love. He just loves going there. And it's it's a joy to see because he is, as we say, a willful child. And uh, Montessori is good for him. <laughs> I'm very, very relieved. So it's all, you know, everything's good. Tired, but good. And that's not... That's about as much as you can ask for. But tonight, tonight we start a new text. Now, I have spent the last, since, since I knew we were heading into this, uh, and I'm very happy that, that we, um, you know, the, the Ravelry group decided that this would be a good little break before heading into something else that's really humongous. Um, I'm really glad everybody agreed to just dig in and see what we can get out of Tristan and Isolde. There was a movie that was released a year ago, 2006, with, um, oh my gosh, and now I can't remember his name, the guy who played Peter Parker's friend in James somebody. Oh, it's so embarrassing. Um, I can't open the web browser because it'll bomb GarageBand, otherwise I would have been typing and gotten his name by now. It'll come to me at three in the morning. But uh, the guy who was Peter Parker's friend in the Spider-Man series, um, and I thought he was very, very good in the Spider-Man series. I thought he had kind of the right combination of pathos and good-looking sidekick, best friend, and psychopath being haunted by his father stuff. I really thought he did a, a nice job. Evidently, when he did Tristan and Isolde, he played Tristan. I don't know if it was because Ridley Scott lost his mind, which I find very odd because Blade Runner, I thought, was a work of art. Even even the pictures, if you go online and you search for images, you know, do a Google search for images of Tristan and Isolde, you will see pictures from the film. Even in the pictures, you're going to look at them and say to yourself, whoa, when did Tristan become a beefcake GQ, you know, rippling muscle guy, which, you know, it's not unpleasant to look at, but it's kind of missing the point. And, and B, Tristan was born in sadness. Tristan isn't supposed to be sad. And if he is, then he just becomes this kind of mopey, wet blanket. And that is the one thing he cannot be. And I know I'm talking about it before you've heard it, but this is also kind of a, a precursor. There's some interesting stuff that's going on psychologically in these stories. And I'm, I, will, I will give you as much background as I possibly can, hopefully without putting you to sleep because the background I think is kind of fascinating. But the, I don't know the girl who plays Isolde. She's beautiful. I'm sure she's fine. They, um, for those of you who are fiber conscious, they appear to have gotten the costumes correct. 
it all appears to be hand-spun and hand-woven, and in some cases hand-knitted, if not nail-bended, null-bended, I'm not sure. I can't recognize null-bending at 50 paces, and that's about where the, the picture was taken. But the costumes all seem to be relatively correct. Um, so it's it's really kind of tragic, because the one thing that evidently they did right is they cast Rufus Sewell as King Mark, and Rufus Sewell has shown up in a variety of movies in a variety of parts. The The one that I remember him for the most is from, oh my goodness, it's probably been, it's been more than, it's been more than a decade. Wow, how, how young was he? I was thinking about him in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. He plays Fortinbras, and Fortinbras has a difficult part to pull off because he kind of appears and disappears and appears and disappears, and then he's kind of the deus ex machina moment where he shows up and, um, and everybody's dead, and he says, well then, fine, I will be king of Denmark, and that's the end. Well, it's hard to make Fortinbras an engaging character, and he did. And part of it is because he's so odd-looking, not in a bad way, but he's he's very different. I mean, he's very handsome, but not kind of that casually walking down the beach, oh, what a cute guy, handsome. He's He's got a look. And so for him to play King Mark, he's a very talented actor. He's I think he's Royal Shakespeare Company. And all of the reviews say that it is absolutely tragic. Not, not that the story of Tristan and Isolde is tragic, it's tragic because he's so good and the movie is so bad. In fact, one of the pages that I found where I did some of the research actually called it an unintentionally funny Tristan and Isolde, except for Rufus Sewell. And to me, that's just sad. You know, you have, you have one great performance. So I think probably before we're done, I am going to rent this. Maybe I'll rent it while Andrew's out of town. And uh, and I will watch it, and I will let you know. So many people wrote and said, oh my gosh, don't don't watch the movie. Or they wrote in and said, I'd be really interested to know what Tristan and Isolde is supposed to be because the movie was so bad. To me, that's just kind of like saying, don't look at that car accident. <laughs> makes me want to go watch it. There's got to be something sick and twisted about me that that's my reaction. But, but there it is. So tonight, I am going to go ahead and break into the narrative like I've done a couple of times before, because there are there are moments in the narrative that are fairly um, heavy-handed, almost like um, like begats in the Bible. And so I will occasionally break in and say, okay, and this is all that that meant is just this. But what you need to know as background, or actually, you probably don't need to know this, but I think it's interesting. There are many, 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 many different versions of Tristan and Isolde. And there are many different ways to spell her name. There's Tristan and Isolde, and Tristan and Isolde, and all sorts of different things that I can't possibly pronounce. And there are going to be lots of words that I am going to get wrong tonight. For those of you who live in Cornwall, Wales, Germany, France, Ireland, any place where there is a history of Tristan and Isolde, would you do me a favor and either email me with phonetics or audio me or or email me and ask me to Skype with you because I think actually Deb, one of our listeners and her daughter Kate, I think we are actually going to Skype about this because Kate has actually taken a class on Tristan and Isolde. So hopefully I'll be able to play some of these um, conversations or at least audio clips of people saying, okay, this is how you actually pronounce it, or this is what I learned it was about, or this is what I learned um, were the origins of the story. I would love that, because this this is absolute folklore. And what I mean by that is that there is a history of oral tradition that precedes the written versions, and because there was an oral tradition, it traveled. And so you wind up with a bunch of written versions happening almost concurrently with each other, but in different places, you know, separated by, in some cases, decades, and in some places by hundreds of years. But what that creates is, at, at the very least, two distinctly separate strains of this story. 
And the way that they're referred to is there's the coarse version, kind of the vulgar version, and I'll explain what that is in a second. And then there's the courtly version, and I'll start with the courtly version. You have um, Thomas of Britain, or Angleterre, depending on where you're reading about him, and Gottfried von Strasbourg, who obviously was German. These two guys really kind of set the, the bar for the courtly version, and they were basing Oh, I hope they get this right. They were basing their version on a French text from the 12th century. So they wrote their versions, and it's all about emotion, and it's all about courtly love. And courtly love was a big deal in the 12th century French courts. Um, in this case, the love potion that the two drink is permanent, and that will matter to you shortly. And you're going to say to yourself, why is she telling me about the love potion? It's because you kind of need to know that it's coming. You need to watch the setup. I've talked before about Brecht, the, the German playwright, and how he has the, um, the theater of alienation. This idea that he would tell you what's coming before it happens, and then he'd let you watch it. And of course, the word alienate in German, it, it doesn't really translate correctly into English. The idea wasn't to alienate you from the story. The idea was to to alienate you from your emotions so that you could watch things, doesn't this sound German? So you could watch things kind of coldly and dispassionately and watch the train wreck as it happens so that you could learn something from it and understand it better. The kicker is with Brecht. He was such a good playwright that he could have somebody walk across the stage and say, you know, this is where Tristan and Isolde drink the love potion. You know, act two, Tristan and his old drink the potion and doom themselves forever. And then you watch the play. And because he's such a great playwright, you get absolutely swept up in the emotion of the play and you're still crying. I, I think we forget that you can, you can think and react emotionally all at the same time. So I'm not, I'm not spoiling anything that should be a huge surprise. There are other things that will surprise you later. But this idea of courtly love becomes kind of interesting because for so long, historically, there wasn't this idea of love or, no, I don't want to say there wasn't any love because obviously there was. There wasn't, there wasn't romance, capital R. There wasn't this idea that you meet someone and you fall in love so much so that it hurts. And if they left you, you would fall over dead because it would pain you so deeply to the core of your soul that you, you literally cannot be separated from this person. That was an invention that started in about the 12th century. And it follows from this point, it's, it's kind of the pulling out of the Dark Ages and moving into the medieval period. This is what carries you into the Arthurian romances and uh, and later romances too, and eventually it moves into Gothic literature, and you know it, it transforms in a lot of a lot of different ways. But this is really the the beginning of it as far as literature and 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 folklore goes. That is not to say that there are not Greek and Roman myths that use these same motifs. In fact, I think you'd be hard pressed to find any motif that doesn't go back to at the very least a Greek myth. Um, there's the unattainable love. But this is taking the unattainable love, that kind of Greek, well, if I can't have you, I'll become a tree <laughs> motif that you get in Ovid so often. This takes it and kind of pushes it to the next level. And in this case, you find that the, the love in its idealized form is the this burning passion that you have for another person but because of circumstance you can't act on it and so you have this absolutely pure absolutely chaste love not even necessarily from afar you know the the painful part of it is that you're in constant contact with this person but you can't act on it and you can't act on it because you are a chivalrous man or because you are a pure woman or you know what have you well the interesting thing about Tristan and Isolde's courtly versions is that it kind of follows that motif line and then it doesn't so you're going to be able to watch that kind of get tweaked and happen and one of 
one of my favorite things that I came across in doing this research was that in one Middle, Engl Middle English versions of the story, Tristan and Isolde both drink this love potion. They both fall in love, but there's this wonderful moment where some of it spills. You know, it's like they they look into each other's eyes. They recognize that they love each other. They both drop their goblets, and Tristan's dog <laughs> licks up the rest of the potion and falls in love with both of them. And so the, the ending line of that section talks about how, you know, they burned with love for each other, as did the dog. <laughs> I was rolling. Maybe it won't make you laugh yet, but later, later it will. So you have, you have this courtly version of the story. Then you have the, the coarser version of the story. And this is the version that was written by um, a guy named um, Burol and there's another guy, another German guy, Eilhart von Oberge, which I'm sure I am mispronouncing. They both did, it was much more of a crisis-driven plot. It was the, the plot where it kind of went disaster to disaster to disaster. In that version, the king, who is supposed to marry Isolde, is very, very, very mean. Very mean. This is not the version we are listening to. He's, he's, so, he's so mean that in one version of the stories, when he catches them, he locks Isolde up in a leper colony to be raped. That's what I mean by mean. That's just, that's, wow. That goes beyond mean in my book. So you have, um, you have that kind of thing happening in the coarser version, the more vulgar version, which is, and I'm not, I'm not putting those words in the mouths of history. Those are the words that have come to us. And in that case, interestingly, the love potion is temporary. And so at a certain point, Tristan and Isolde have the opportunity to decide for themselves whether they are going to continue this affair, and they decide to. And that kind of gives you everything has a, a kind of a mean streak to it in, in that version. The interesting thing is that while there's a Breton version of the story and a Celtic version of a story and a Welsh version of the story and a French version of the story, and I need to look at the list because you won't believe how many versions there are. French, English, Scandinavian, Dutch, Welsh, Spanish, Czech, Italian, and Belarusian. There is a certain amount of agreement that at some point there is an Ur Tristan. There is there is the the single singular Tristan that started the whole thing off. There is no agreement on where it started. Most people think it was Celtic, and if not Celtic, Welsh. Um, some people think it's Persian. There are Persian stories that seem to follow, or there is a Persian story that seems to follow so closely to the plot line that people think it, it may be the same. But there's very little um, written down that you can use to trace um, the movement of the story. Unlike the name Aphrodite, which you can actually trace from Isis up through... Um, kind of the, the Persian Gulf area and uh, up through Turkey and over and down into Greece. You can, you can actually trace the linguistic track of how Isis becomes Ishtar, becomes Astarte, becomes, I can't remember the next one, and it, it goes on like a domino effect into Aphrodite. They can't do that with this story. So Tristan and Isolde is, is interesting because it goes way, way back. And nobody's completely sure just how far back it goes, but but it goes a ways, quite a ways. So that's gives you kind of the the big, big picture of of the whole thing, and um, I think I have managed to save you the pain of having to listen to me pronounce <laughs> French or Welsh. I actually got Brenda Dane's partner Tanya on Skype today to try and get help for pronouncing Welsh. And Tanya wasn't online, but Sage Turtle of Quirky Nomads was, and she found me a Welsh pronunciation site that um, that really was incredibly helpful. And I did figure out how to say these things, but strangely enough, my tongue wouldn't agree to say to say these things. And um, and so I've, I've tried to work my way around all of this so that you wouldn't have to listen to me butcher anybody else's language. Um, and just for those of you who have studied folklore, there is a Thomas Mallory version of Tristan and Isolde in the Mort d'Arthur. Okay, there I, I spoke French. That was that was pretty painless. Um, and there is a Chrétien de Troyes, which I know I pronounced incorrectly, 
who I thought this was hysterical, and I'm actually going to read this to you. He claimed to have written a Tristan story in, um, in one of his pieces, although no part of it has ever been found. It says that he mentions this in the introduction to Cligé, a romance that um, many see as a kind of anti-Tristan that has a happy ending. And some scholars have speculated that his Tristan's, his version of Tristan was so ill-received that he wrote Cligé, a story with no Celtic antecedent. There was no connection to anybody else. And that he, he wrote this version to kind of make up for it and then probably got rid of the original manuscript. But, um, but there are... There are so many different versions of Tristan and Isolde. For the most part, all we are going to concern ourselves with is the version we're listening to, and occasionally I'll break in with uh, information on Lancelot and Guinevere and Arthur, because there are, there are overlaps and there are connections between the two. And, um, and I think some of that is kind of interesting. So I'll do my best to make sure that I, I give you what... A, whatever might be helpful in uh, understanding some of this stuff. There is also the fact that since this is folklore, there's not going to be a lot of times where I'm going to say, oh, and you know, here's an incredible work of, uh, you know, metaphor or simile or oh, listen to this technique because you're not going to hear those kinds of techniques. Although I have to say, Bedier, who wrote this and what's-his-face, who did the translation. Oh my gosh, I can't remember his name. What is it? Um, Bedier wrote it, and uh, I have no knowledge of who. Why isn't it here? I'm looking, I'm actually looking at the text. Uh, Belloc. H. Belloc. Which always, the name always makes me think of Indiana Jones, the first one. Belloc. Um, but he's the guy who did the translation, and I, I think it's a very good Victorian translation. It gives you kind of a feel for the story, so I'm, I'm not going to make any complaints. It's not like listening to Turn of the Screw, which is was full of stuff that was very hard to track through, and, and this is not that bad. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start the first part of Tristan and Isolde, and then I'm going to break in when I need to to make sure that everything's making sense because I want to make sure that the foundation is set for you. So, without any more yammering, here you go, the beginning of Tristan and Isolde. The Romance of Tristan and Isolde by Joseph Bédier Translated by H. Belloc Part the First, The Childhood of Tristan My Lords, if you would hear a high tale of love and of death, here is that of Tristan and Queen Isolt. How to their full joy, but to their sorrow also, they loved each other, and how at last they died of that love together upon one day, she by him, and he by her. Long ago, when Mark was king over Cornwall, Rivelin, king of Lyonesse, heard that Mark's enemies waged war on him, so he crossed the sea to bring him aid, and so faithfully did he serve him with counsel and sword, that Mark gave him his sister Blanchefleur, whom King Rivelin loved most marvellously. He wedded her in Tintagel Minster, but hardly was she wed when the news came to him that his old enemy, Duke Morgan, had fallen on Lyonesse, and was wasting town and field. Then Rivelin manned his ships in haste, and took Blanchefleur with him to his far land. But she was with child. He landed below his castle of Canoel, and gave the queen in ward to his marshal Roholt, and after that set off to wage his war. Blanchefleur waited for him continually, but he did not come home, till she learnt upon a day that Duke Morgan had killed him in foul ambush. She did not weep. She made no cry or lamentation. But her limbs failed her, and grew weak and her soul was filled with a strong desire to be rid of the flesh, and though Roholt tried to soothe her, she would not hear. Three days she awaited reunion with her lord, and on the fourth she brought forth a son, and taking him in her arms she said, Little son, I have longed a while to see you, and now I see you the fairest thing ever a woman bore. 
In sadness came I hither. In sadness did I bring forth. And in sadness has your first feast day gone. And as by sadness you came into the world, your name shall be called Tristan, that is the child of sadness. After she had said these words, she kissed him, and immediately when she had kissed him, she died. Broholt, the keeper of faith, took the child, but already Duke Morgan's men besieged the castle of Canoel all round about. There is a wise saying, Foolhardy was never hardy, and he was compelled to yield to Duke Morgan at his mercy. But for fear that Morgan might slay Rivelin's heir, the marshal hid him among his own sons. Okay, so here's the first place I'm going to stop. Um, first off, I would love for someone to write to me or audio me and tell me, I grew up hearing, and I think my folklore professor, when I took my class on King Arthur, pronounced this particular fortress Tintagel in Cornwall. I have no idea if it's Tintagel or Tintagel or something else completely different. I would love to know. Regardless, um, it matters a little bit in um, figuring the provenance of where the story came from that uh, Tristan is born at Tintagel or Tintagel. This is where the Arthurian legends also start. This is where um, the Pendragon king is supposed to have bedded Arthur's mom. And, of course, Arthur winds up being um, an orphan as well. And so here you have this moment where uh, Tristan, who, and now you know why he's named Tristan. It's, you know, the Latin word Trist, T-R-I-S-T-E, or in Spanish, Triste, or it goes on from there. Um you have this child who's born, who's almost immediately orphaned, and who um, is given to a kind person to be raised. Uh, and in this case, he's he's raised as one of this man's own sons. Um, there's also, it's interesting, um, Blanchefleur and Roholt, um, or Blanchefleur and, and her husband, um, the king of Lyonnais, he, Rivelin, um, there are some versions where Rivelin isn't dead, and Rivelin shows up after she's died. And Rivelin, being no idiot, gives the child to Roholt, and then, I guess, goes off again and, you know, wages battle on somebody else. Um, if you are confused, I have put, I have borrowed <laughs> a very nicely done graphic of a family tree so that you can see how everybody's connected and what their names are and, and how they're spelled. For me, sometimes that, that matters more than anything is just seeing the spelling. Um, because, this is, um, because this is folklore and because this is stuff that goes back to oral tradition, you will hear from time to time magic numbers. Numbers in folklore almost always mean something. Um, you know, like the number four would be the four seasons or, or the four compass points. The number three is obviously the Trinity. So that would only show up in folklore that, that um, comes after Christianity. It means something differently before that. Um, the number seven, you've got the seven days of the week. You've got, oh, I can't remember them all. Um, uh, six, God created the world in six days and on the seventh he rested. Um, you've got the number 13, which is a prime number and evidently unlucky. Seven's also a prime number. Um, you have 40, 40 days and 40 nights. My understanding was that 40 was a number that was equated with infinity back, back in the day. So when Noah had it rain for 40 days and 40 nights, it rained forever. It's, it was a, almost a metaphor. It was, it rained for a mad long time, yo. So you will hear magic numbers show up and it's one of those things that it's almost impossible for us to know exactly what was meant by the magic numbers but it matters that numbers are mentioned so um you know send me your ideas for what you think the numbers stand for because i'm sure you have just as good an idea as i do it's just one of those things to kind of listen for while you're while you're um listening to the rest of the story so here we go, back to what's going on with Tristan. When seven years were passed, 
and the time had come to take the child from the women. Rohalt put Tristan under a good master, the squire Gorvenal, and Gorvenal taught him in a few years the arts that go with barony. He taught him the use of lance and sword and scutcheon and bow, and how to cast stone quoits, and to leap wide dykes also. And he taught him to hate every lie and felony, and to keep his given word. And he taught him the various kinds of song and harp-playing, and the hunter's craft. And when the child rode among the young squires, you would have said that he and his horse and his armour were all one thing. To see him so noble and so proud, broad in the shoulders, loyal, strong and right, all men glorified Roholt in such a son. But Roholt, remembering Rivelin and Blanche Fleur, of whose youth and grace all this was a resurrection, loved him indeed as a son, but in his heart revered him as his lord. So that section should have uh, rung some bells as far as tapping into this idea of courtly love and correctness, the idea that um, that he he hated every lie and felony and he kept his word when he gave it and he was noble and proud and broad in the shoulders and loyal, strong and right. This is this is kind of classic um, chivalric statements about what it is to in this case to be a man um, the fact that he's also he's not he's not just learning how to fight he's learning how to play the harp and sing this is kind of the beginning of the renaissance man before the renaissance um, that this this was valued you know somebody who could not only protect you but also keep you happy and entertained this is really quite a catch and so um it matters that we get this background on, on Tristan. This isn't just a bunch of begats. Now all his joy was snatched from him on a day when certain merchants of Norway, having lured Tristan to their ship, bore him off as a rich prize, though Tristan fought hard, as a young wolf struggles caught in a gin. But it is a truth well proved, and every sailor knows it, that the sea will hardly bear felon ship, and gives no aid to rapine. The sea rose and cast a dark storm round the ship and drove it eight days and eight nights at random, till the mariners caught through the mist a coast of awful cliffs and seaward rocks, whereon the sea would have ground their hull to pieces. Then they did penance, knowing that the anger of the sea came of the lad, whom they had stolen in an evil hour, and they vowed his deliverance, and got ready a boat to put him, if it might be, ashore. Then the wind and sea fell and the sky shone, and as the Norway ship grew small in the offing, a quiet tide cast Tristan and the boat upon a beach of sand. Painfully he climbed the cliff and saw beyond a lonely rolling heath and a forest stretching out and endless. And he wept, remembering Gorvenal, his father, and the land of Lyonesse. Then the distant cry of a hunt, with horse and hound, came suddenly and lifted his heart, and a tall stag broke cover at the forest edge. The pack and the hunt streamed after it with a tumult of cries and winding horns. But just as the hounds were racing clustered at the haunch, the quarry turned to bay at a stone's throw from Tristan. A huntsman gave him the thrust, while all around the hunt had gathered and was winding the kill. But Tristan, seeing by the gesture of the huntsman that he made to cut the neck of the stag, cried out, "'My lord, what would you do? Is it fitting to cut up so noble a beast like any farmyard hog? Is that the custom of this country?' And the huntsman answered, "'Fair friend, what startles you? Why, yes, first I take off the head of a stag, and then I cut it into four quarters, and we carry it on our saddle-bows to King Mark, our lord. So do we, and so since the days of the first huntsmen have done the Cornish men. If, however, you know of some nobler custom, teach it us. Take this knife, and we will learn it willingly. Then Tristan kneeled and skinned the stag before he cut it up, and quartered it all in order, leaving the crowbone all whole, as is meat, and putting aside at the end the head, the haunch, the tongue, and the great heart's vein, 
and the huntsman and the kennel hinds stood over him with delight, and the master huntsman said, Friend, these are good ways. In what land learnt you them? Tell us your country and your name. Good Lord, my name is Tristan, and I learnt these ways in my country of Lyonesse. Tristan, said the master huntsman, God reward the father that brought you up so nobly. Doubtless he is a baron, rich and strong. Now Tristan knew both speech and silence, and he answered, No, Lord, my father is a burgess. I left his home unbeknownst upon a ship that trafficked to a far place, for I wished to learn how men lived in foreign lands. But if you will accept me of the hunt, I will follow you gladly and teach you other crafts of venery. Fair Tristan, I marvel there should be a land where Burgess's son can know what a knight's son knows not elsewhere. But come with us since you will it, and welcome. We will bring you to King Mark, our lord. Okay, I hope your reaction to all of that was, oh yeah, that's what the huntsman would have said. <laughs> the first time I listened to this, I thought, oh, yeah, we're not in modern literature anymore, are we? That Tristan shows up and says, dude, you're doing it all wrong. And the guy says, ooh, show me how to do it. Um, again, this is just, just setting up the fact that Tristan plays by the rules, that he's a good man, he's a man who would like to help, even though he could probably, you know, kill all these guys with his bare hands, he would rather help. And, um, and he's also smart enough to kill something, uh, what's considered the right way. Um, and of course it's for food, so you don't want somebody who's just going to make a hatchet job of your dinner. And um, and now we meet King Mark. So now is when actually going back and looking at the show notes and looking at the uh, genealogy chart is probably going to be helpful. So if you're near your computer, you may want to pull up craftlit.blogspot.com and take a look at the genealogy. Tristan completed his task. To the dogs he gave the heart, the head, offal, and ears. And he taught the hunt how the skinning and the ordering should be done. Then he thrust the pieces upon pikes, and gave them to this huntsman and to that to carry, to one the snout, to another the haunch, to another the flank, to another the chine. And he taught them how to ride by twos in rank, according to the dignity of the pieces each might bear. So they took the road and spoke together, till they came on a great castle, and round it fields and orchards, and living waters, and fish-ponds, and plough-lands, and many ships were in its haven, for that castle stood above the sea. It was well fenced against all assault or engines of war, and its keep, which the giants had built long ago, was compact of great stones, like a chessboard of vert and azure. And when Tristan asked its name, "'Good liege,' they said, "'we call it Tintagel,' and Tristan cried, Tintacle, blessed be thou of God, and blessed be they that dwell within thee. Therein, my lords, therein had Rivelin taken Blanche Fleur to wife, though their son knew it not. When they came before the keep, the horns brought the barons to the gates, and King Mark himself. And when the master huntsman had told him all the story, and King Mark had marvelled at the good order of the cavalcade, and the cutting of the stag, and the high art of venery in all. Yet most he wondered at the stranger boy, and still gazed at him, troubled and wondering whence came his tenderness, and his heart would answer him nothing. But, my lords, it was blood that spoke, and the love he had long since borne his sister Blanche Fleur. That evening, when the boards were cleared, a singer out of Wales, a master, came forward among the barons in hall, and sang a harper's song. And as this harper touched the strings of his harp, Tristan, who sat at the king's feet, spoke thus to him, O oh, master, that is the first of songs. The Bretons of old wove at once to chant the loves of Greylent. And the melody is rare, and rare are the words. Master, your voice is subtle. Harp us that well. But when the Welshman had sung, he answered, Boy, what do you know of the craft of music? If the Burgesses of Lyonesse teach their sons harp, 
play also, and rotes and viols too. Rise and take this harp and show your skill. Then Tristan took the harp, and sang so well that the barons softened as they heard, and King Mark marvelled at the harper from Leonesse, whither so long ago Rivlin had taken Barshfleur away. When the song ended, the king was silent a long space, but he said at last, Son, blessed be the master that taught thee, and blessed be thou of God, for God loves good singers. Their voices and the voice of the harp enter the souls of men and wake dear memories and cause them to forget many a morning and many a sin. For our joy did you come to this roof. Stay near us a long time, friend. And Tristan answered, Very willingly will I serve you, sire, as your harper, your huntsman, and your liege. Okay, so Tristan's mom was Blanche Fleur, and Tristan's mom's brother is King Mark. So Tristan has, in effect, come home to Cornwall. And, in fact, Tristan is usually referred to as Tristan of Cornwall, and Isolde is Isolde the Fair from Ireland. So that gives you a little, a little bit of information on where everybody's coming from. So now Tristan is back at King Mark's house, which is probably where he should have been in the first place. So did he, and for three years a mutual love grew up in their hearts. By day, Tristan followed King Mark at pleas and in saddle. By night, he slept in the royal room with the counsellors and the peers. And if the king was sad, he would harp to him to soothe his care. The barons also cherished him, and, as you shall learn, Dinas of Lydon, the seneschal, beyond all others. And more tenderly than the barons and than Dinas, the king loved him. But Tristan could not forget, or Rohalt his father, or his master Gorvenal, or the land of Leonesse. My lords, a teller that would please should not stretch his tale too long, and truly this tale is so various and so high that it needs no straining. Then let me shortly tell how Rohalt himself, after long wandering by sea and land, came into Cornwall, and found Tristan, and showing the king the carbuncle that once was Blanche Fleur's, said, King Mark, here is your nephew Tristan, son of your sister Blanche Fleur, and of King Rivelin. Duke Morgan holds his land most wrongfully. It is time such land came back to its lord. And Tristan, in a word, when his uncle had armed him knight, crossed the sea, and was hailed of his father's vassals, and killed Rivelin's slayer, and was re-seized of his land. Then remembering how King Mark could no longer live in joy without him, he summoned his council and his barons, and said this, Lords of Leonesse, I have retaken this place, and I have avenged King Rivelin by the help of God and of you. But two men, Rohalt and King Mark of Cornwall, nourished me, an orphan and a wandering boy. So should I call them also fathers. Now a free man has two things thoroughly his own, his body and his land. To Rohalt then here I will release my land. Do you hold it, father, and your son shall hold it after you. But my body I give up to King Mark. I will leave this country, dear though it be, and in Cornwall I will serve King Mark as my lord. Such is my judgment, but you, my lords of Leonesse, are my lieges, and owe me counsel. If, then, some one of you will counsel me another thing, let him rise and speak. But all the barons praised him, though they wept, and taking with him Gorvenal only, Tristan set sail for King Mark's land. Okay, so here we are. We have barely even started the story, and you're also already getting into the episodic nature of, um, of the way this story is going to work. Um, we, we started with Tristan's birth, and instead of just ending with Tristan's birth, the first, the first episode of this story ends with him doing something both courageous and correct. He's, he's giving the land back to his people and he's, he's going off to live with King Mark. Um, 
and and so you get kind of a, a complete picture of Tristan from this first episode. Now, it it is episodic. There's going everything's going to feel kind of disjointed from here on out except for a few places and that's that's the nature of the beast that's what happens in oral tradition and that's what happens you know the odyssey is episodic and gilgamesh is episodic and um there's not a lot of <laughs> transition words or connective tissue between between the stories so you know each one could conceivably stand on its own around a fire at night when you have a big glass of port in your hand or ale or mead or whatever it was that you were going to uh, drink then. And for those of you who have done some reading, you're going to you're gonna hear some things that remind you of the Wanderer or even of Beowulf, um, St. George and the Dragon. There's just going to be a lot of stuff that you go, oh, that sounds vaguely familiar. And you're right, it does, because all of these things fed all of these things. There was a, a lot of kind of incestuous story making going on back then. But this is the first part. This is our introduction to Tristan, and soon we will have our introduction to Isolde. And I won't ramble nearly as much next week about the history and the background of this. Instead, we'll just get right into the stories and, uh, and have a lot more fun. I hope you have had a great week. I certainly have, and I hope your next week is just as fantabulous, if not even better. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the beginning of Tristan and Isolde. I'll talk to you later. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is supported by the generous donations of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.